Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we discuss the U.S. women's national team's lawsuit against U.S. soccer, heard fresh new R&B, and learned about the early days of the Chicago house scene. All this, plus the new season of Size Matters, The Trump Diaries, and AWCYFM, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for the week of November 22, 2019. John Daly chatted with lawyer and soccer journalist Kyle McCarthy about the suit filed by the U.S. women's soccer team against Chicago-based U.S. soccer. The team is fighting for equal pay, but as McCarthy explains, the legal nuances of the case are more complex than meets the eye. Radio Free with John Daly airs every Tuesday, drive time. Kyle uh, is both a soccer journalist and a lawyer, and uh, we wanted to get him on the phone today to talk a little bit about the situation uh, with U.S. soccer, which of course is based here in Chicago, and the U.S. women's soccer team. Um, Kyle, just for people that have not been following along, could you break down a little bit about, first of all, what's going on between a team that ostensibly works for U.S. soccer and is a part of U.S. soccer, and why they have filed a a lawsuit and what they're looking for? Yeah, at at its core, this lawsuit is about equal pay. Uh, The U.S. women have had a lot of success over the years, and they feel like they haven't been compensated appropriately, uh, particularly in light of what the men's national team makes. And they've decided to to go through the courts and and try and get a solution to make this a more equitable uh, arrangement between all parties. Now, am I correct in thinking that the United uh, the U.S. Women's Soccer Team also has a union? Correct, and didn't they engage in collective bargaining with the, with U.S. Soccer Federation? You are correct, and they, and they have engaged in collective bargaining in the past, and I'm sure they will in the future. Uh, but I think the the crux of the matter is here that they believe they deserve more money, and they believe that the way it's structured now just doesn't comply with law. So they've decided to pursue an alternate path as well. Okay, so they did make an appeal to the uh, National Labor Relations Board, correct? And they uh, they haven't called for a strike or anything like that, but they did file a lawsuit. I guess, again, just for our listeners who may not be familiar with kind of some of the ins and outs of this, could you explain, I guess, why this particular path was taken and not, for example, a, a strike or a walkout, as we might see in other uh, labor management dynamics? Yeah, it, it's a tricky situation because a lot of this was bubbling up during last summer, where the U.S. women uh, had alternative uh, plans. Uh, they didn't want to be, you know, taking themselves away from the, the Women's World Cup, which they eventually won. Uh, and I don't think U.S. soccer wanted to see that either. So both parties uh, were, were in a place where they were willing to pursue that after uh, the World Cup. And it's a very complex and not particularly radio-friendly route and path, but really what it boils down to is that U.S. soccer thinks the U.S. women's team is is worth X, and the U.S. women's team thinks they're worth Y, and now they're in the courts to try and sort it out. Is this about just straight pay and compensation, or are there things like resources and, um, you know, collateral around uh, the teams, whether it's training or, or other resources? Yeah, that's a good point, and a lot of it is about the, the collateral as well. Um, you know, when you talk about the differences in, in venues, right? The U.S. women's team a, a couple of years ago went to Hawaii, but they had to cancel the friendly because the turf field wasn't suitable, um, whereas the U.S. men's team basically plays exclusively on grass. Um, you know, the, the travel arrangements can be different. The per diems at one point were different, so... 
it's, it's a really complex situation, and, and I think what you're trying to see from the, the U.S. women is, is a way to, to make it a little bit more equitable across the board. Now, U.S. soccer, as I recall, came out and, and tried to release some documents and said that, in fact, the women were being paid more than the men uh, over a, a calendar year of time. And they pointed to the fact that U.S. soccer subsidizes a league, the uh, NWSL here in the United States, with uh, Canada and, and the Mexican soccer federations. Um, there are also, uh, just to play devil's advocate here for a second, there are fewer venues also and avenues for the women um to make a professional living at than, than the men. I think that's very clear. The men have avenues all over the world, whereas the women really only have the league in the United States. Uh, there's a super league now in, in England and a, and a smaller European league and then some, some scattered leagues in France and Sweden. But the, the available places where a woman who's a professional soccer player can ply her professional craft are slim. So U.S. soccer did try to sponsor this league. And their, one of their arguments has been, because we're subsidizing this and because we're also paying national team members a salary, that the numbers have worked out to be, uh, in their telling, uh, over what the men were paid. First of all, is this a fair line of argument from U.S. soccer? Is this at all accurate? Uh, what There's a bit of a fog around here, so if you could break this down for us, it would be great. Yeah, it, and it's really tricky because it's not an apples-to-apples apples comparison. When you talk about the men's national team, they get paid per camp, per, per game played. Uh, whereas the women, there's a group of players who are under a central contract, and they're paid a certain amount of money every year, uh, and they're allocated to NWSL teams, and then they're paid on top of that as well as they appear. And that's just one portion of it. And for U.S. soccer, I think they look at it in a couple ways. One, they pay their their players better than any other national federation in the world, and I think that's been clear. And they've also invested a lot of resources into the game, both in the NWSL and into the national team program itself. So... It, there's a lot that goes into it. One of the big developments, though, that came out this last week was a ruling by the judge in the case that allowed it to go into class action status. And that's one reason we kind of wanted to get you on the show here. First of all, can you explain what this means? Uh, was that a win for the women? What does this actually do in terms of, of the legal case? It really expands the pool of potentially affected parties, right? So when you have a class action, it's not just the, the people who are impacted, it's the people who are affected. So it's not just the players who are on the team now, it's the players who might have been affected uh, a little bit ago. And what it does is it, it makes it more complex to defend, right? And it's a situation that, uh, you know, will require a lot of insight and depth because, you have to go into it and uh, really sort it out. And it's, uh, it's certainly something that benefits the players from a tactical perspective, but what impact it'll have on the overall process remains to be seen. So that universe then expands to every single member of every historic team? Well, they'd have to show that they're a member of the class of people affected, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's a really complex, legal, jargony type of thing, and... Uh, but what it boils down to is that you have people who will be affected and it expands the number of people that could be included in that. And that makes it more difficult to both prove and defend. So that's, it's interesting you say that from a tactical point of view, that may be a win. 
in the press, uh, the women have had, uh, I would say, a great deal of support. Um, it, it seems their argument that they should get equal pay as the men's team is a very simple, easy-to-understand concept, which has uh, been largely accepted and embraced. Are they winning um, the arguments kind of around this legal case as well? Yeah, I mean, it, it's so early. Uh, these are very complex arguments that span over years and years, but they've had some some early decisions in their favor uh, that have put them in a decent position. But uh, it, it's something where they're able to marshal the, the celebrity of their players in the public sphere, and, and they've been able to, you know, create uh, some goodwill toward that, because it's a very fundamental concept they're trying to share, right? They want, they think that there should be equal pay or more equitable pay than what is uh, on offer right now. It's a little trickier to transpose that into a legal setting, which is a little bit more dispassionate, uh, but they've certainly made some strides so far. Just as a lawyer, Kyle, which which side would you rather be representing? Yeah, I think it's easier. Well, there's no easy side. It's going to be complex either way, but when you're in the plaintiff's shoes, if you can find ways to apply pressure, you might be able to get yourself into a, a settlement that makes sense for all parties. And, and I think that's really what makes sense in the end. Most of these cases will settle out of court. Mario Smith chatted with legendary DJ and artist Terry Hunter. Hunter, who was one of the founding members of the Chicago house scene, discussed working with the chosen few, backing up Aretha Franklin, and where house music is today in our city. News from the service entrance airs every Thursday at 2 p.m. Uh, my next guest is uh, one of the, this, my favorite DJ. Look, let me put it to you this way. <laughs> Cho <laughs> chosen few DJs. All of these brothers are amazing, and their place in history and music is is cemented. If he isn't playing with them, I will go find Terry Hunter playing because I love the way he crafts and puts together a set. And that's a a lost art these days, which is why the chosen few DJs are so dope. Putting together a beginning, middle, and end to a set when you go to a party is very important. And this dude is my favorite. DJ in Chicago, ladies and gentlemen, from the chosen few DJs and a producer and, and music maker in his own right, Mr. Terry Hunter is on the show. What up, boss? Man, wow. Thank you for that introduction, brother. You know, you act, like, you act like we just met. You know how I feel about you. <laughs> no, I know, but I'm just saying, <laughs> you ain't never intro me like that hey, before. You're, you know? you're my guy, and you, you are really, really amazing at your job, and I, 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 I really do like... When I, you know, you did something and I recorded it. My sister, just to cinch all this up, my sister danced on Soul Train for like 12 years. It was a gig. Oh, wow. Okay. It was a gig you did at the Promontory, and I recorded you doing MFSB, the, the original Soul Train theme, and yeah. I sent it to her, and she was like, who, who is that? Who, who did that? Right. And I'm like, it's Terry Hunter. And he's like the man. And he, he played it much longer than I recorded. She was like, I dug that. So, I mean, people, wow. you, mean, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a, a, 
a bit of a craft to be able to make people happy when you play records. Um, you've been at this for a yes. long time, man. Yes, man. Long time, man, since I was a kid. Yeah, I yeah. I uh, with it real early on. How many years has it been officially? You know, I stopped counting, Mario. Wow. I, I started, I was about, I did my eighth grade party. So maybe seventh, really going, got going around seventh grade. Wow. Um, and it just kind of went from there. I did my my eighth grade graduation and luncheon, and, you know, it just kind of went from there, man. So, yeah. Yeah. What do you, when you, because I know you record a lot of music. You and Mike Dunn are together. And that's the other part, too. Your collaborations with people are dope. You and Mike Dunn, man, that's like. Thank you. That's like, okay. Yeah, that's my brother, man. Yeah, I know. So I way know. back, way back. I know. How do you, how do you, how do you work that out when you, when you're trying to find a collaborator for your projects? Um, You know, it's, it, it starts with the mutual respect of one another. You know what I mean? It's like Mike, me and Mike have been doing it uh forever and then finally when we got mike in the shows a few years ago um it was just a thing of mike was like yo man let's let's collab and do something and so for a lot of people that don't know when we make records together we'll remix records together or dj um we go under the moniker of house and hd and a lot of people think it's high definition but it's really hunter done and um we want people you know it's the playoff of high definition, but it's just really the, the, the mutual respect for for one another. Just like I, I just started a, a a new collaboration, which is funny you brought that up, with uh, James Poiser. Mm. Uh, the Roots, man, yeah. So it's, uh, we, I started, I'm starting a new label called Mirabar Records, and me and James kind of met years ago through Jazzy Jeff. Jazzy mm-hmm. Jeff is a good friend of mine, and, you know, we always see each other at Jazzy Jeff's house or in Philly or somewhere. And he's like, man, I want to do some house stuff. And I'm like, man, please. And I just serious. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I right. just never think of kids. Every time we seen each other, we like, man, let's do this. And so about a year or so ago, you know, we was in Philadelphia together and we was all working on a project and we just kind of collabing. And he was like, no, seriously, let's do this. And so when I came back to Chicago, James was like, no, nah, man, I'm serious. And so we put it together and we came up to Monica and the title for, our, for us doing stuff together is Julius Jordan and one... People didn't like, what is that? What is that? Oh, what? I got it. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. So, there you go. So, our first single is coming out in like two weeks, man. Oh, wow. Called Real Good Time with Eric Robinson. Oh, wow. Both, yeah, man. It, this is a big project. We, we're we in the process of doing some stuff with Queen Latifah. Um, a lot of major artists on there. I got some stuff with my man Slick, mm. uh, Adams from Chicago. Yeah, yeah. Branching out, man. You do you find that more of a challenge for you uh, being a, a label head and and putting together a roster and, and and not just with the collaborations but with the artists too? Is that more of a of a thing a, a juxtaposed to the passion of playing with the chosen few and DJing? Right, it, great question. It is, but now for me, I would say it's not because I got a great, 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 great team. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, shout out to my man, DJ Immaculate. He kind of label manages um, the new label, Mirrorball, and my existing label, Tease Box Records, Tease Crate. But then we also got my man, Gary Wallace, and Wayne Williams is kind of like the A&R. So it's like I'm able to kind of dish things to, you know, the other guys that's, that's on the team, and they can, you know, pick up the slack for me. So I think it's, it, it, it allows me to have that team. I can concentrate on making records and also DJing all over. So... 
it's good right now, man. I can imagine. We're talking to Terry Hunter, uh, DJ extraordinaire. Going to be at uh, Promontory tonight for the uh, fifth anniversary party, along with Roy Ayers and Hypnotic Brass Ensemble. Um, this year, Chosen Few really mm. did it. The picnic, you know, we had the big talk at the Promontory with Silver Room and Chosen Few, and absolutely both of the events happened and. You guys knocked it out of the park yet again. Um, yeah, how, how, how much longer do you foresee being able to do that at that clip? Ooh, that's a great question. Well, come 2020 next year is our 30th. So, you know, we're really trying to outdo what we did this uh, previous year. And to me, it's funny that you say that this was actually one of my favorite years mm. uh, since I've been a chosen few DJ. And, you know, I don't know. I just think the love for the music, obviously, you know, we have a mature crowd, but we also have a younger crowd. And I think what we want to do is start balancing it out and bringing in younger DJs and younger talent uh, from all over the world and, and just kind of keep it going. You know what I mean? I don't yeah. think we, I don't even think we peaked yet, to, to be honest, mm. Mario. So mm. I think that we still have room. And like I said, bring that fresh talent and that fresh uh, young blood in DJ-wise and to kind of get those people involved. Because, you know, people, are they bring their kids. And, you know, we've seen some of the kids grow up mm -hmm. and make friends. And so, I don't know, man. I don't know when it's going to peak. I don't think no time soon. Mm. I guess I, I say that because I know with, and I'm not speaking out of school, with Block Party, we've noticed that the space is becoming a bit demanding, and it's more yes. people than the space will allow. Um, right. Do you all see that same issue? Is it like expanding further into the park? Is it moving the location? I mean, because logistically, it seems to work really well in that setting, but there's more yes. people coming every year. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. How much bigger do you foresee it getting? I, I definitely see it, and especially next year, I really see it getting uh, bigger because we're kind of going all out with the talent. We're trying to, you know, get something special for the people for our 30th. But right. I don't think we, we we got some room to grow in that part because there's still a lot of stuff in the back. And then don't forget that other side. Yeah. We can use that if need be. You know what I mean? Because originally that's where we were at. Right. We were on the smaller side. So we kind of have that um, area as well. So you never know. We may have a second tent. Oh, wow. Uh, a uh, second check, uh, a stage, excuse me, on that side. So you know, we I think we got room to grow. Wow, wow, yeah. Next yeah, year is thirty, man. man. That's crazy. Um, crazy. Right? I I know there have been, <laughs> and when I lived in the South Shore, going to the, the I I would walk there and try to walk home, and it's just like, man, I'm so tired. I have not right. I, I'm not the dancing dude, but I I swear, y'all make me go, man. I have a great time at that event every year. I do. And I'm really looking forward to next year because I foresee, without knowing any of your lineup, I think this will be right. the one where it's like, yeah, I'm glad I made the decision to come. Oh, yeah. I trust everybody. It's July 4th next year, 2020. Like, I'm telling you, wait <laughs> till you die. See, what we're about to do is going to be major. Shout out to Alan King. Yes, sir. Wait, my partners in crime. Like, we definitely got something special in store for, for everybody. I know tonight, uh, five years of Promontory, we're celebrating uh, the, the anniversary with you and yeah. Hypnotic and Roy. Um, and 
I know that DJs have their places that they really like playing, and then there are places they're like, "Yeah, so so." But it seems like Chosen Few likes playing at our spot, you know. Oh man, listen, we love the promontory. We love the whole staff. Everybody is just it's 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 a home for us. You know what I mean? And yeah. you guys bring real music to that venue, and that's another thing that we love and respect. And I think the people feel that same energy, and that's why we keep doing events over and over there. Well, man, look, I'm looking forward to seeing you later on. I know you're in the studio working. I appreciate you yeah. letting me call you a little bit later than I planned. And and, man, uh, and <laughs> we've been talking about doing this for a while. Let's let's not let this be the last time. Got to get man. Out. Let's keep it up. I'm yeah, up, let's let's make this happen again, man. And my best to everybody. And I definitely will catch you later on this evening. All right, look, everybody listen. Come on out. Roy is the legend, y'all. Let's get it in. <laughs> Thank Ter- you, brother. Thank you, Terry. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs> Just, 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 hey, I, I need them bolt cutters of mine again. Kyle, we've been over this. No bolt cutters until you stop using them uh, to cut the lock off my bicycle. How dare you, Jessica? I wouldn't have to cut the lock if you didn't keep locking it up. Besides, how could I have stolen your bicycle if you still have it? Because all six times I caught you and I took it back. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, God knows what would happen if you got away with it. You don't even know how to ride a bicycle. What thievery are you up to now? Jess, I am softened by that remark. If truth be known, I am trying to secure myself gainful employment. With bolt cutters? With, With what is behind this fence over here on Morgan. Feast your eyes on the rarest of floor finds. Tree saws. This is an active construction site. I, I just saw these guys pop over to Saluri's for lunch. Well, it looks like it ain't that active then. Listen, just stand back and let me get to work over here. I have liberates them. Freedom is now mine. I still don't get this. It's very easy, Jess. Pulaski Savings Bank is always needing tree service, and with these tools, I can provide that service. And from that, I can parlay it into some fall-time haggerswaggle. Kyle, you're like 70 years old. Oh, yeah, okay. Tree cutting is arduous work. Are you sure you're physically up for this? I got some million-dollar marketing idea, so just sit back and watch. What are you jokers doing now? Oh, Kyle's trimming trees at the bank. They're giving him 60 bucks. Is he okay? He looks a little pale. Um... I think he might be having a heart attack, actually. Mm, that's just his regular clammy sweat and deathly complexion. You jagoffs can say what you want, but my treeway system is going to change the industry. <laughs> Your what? Yeah, it's my system to gin up business. All over Bridgeport are trees that need trimming. <laughs> Look at this. Look at this sign. How about a treeway? Are you serious? Absolutely. Watch this. Hey, you over there. How about a treeway? Uh, oh, no, no, no. Hey, how about no. a treeway? A treeway right hey, now. Can it, trucker? Uh, what's this about, a three-way? You got it, buddy. You're the first for my treeway system. Uh, with, with you and these guys? Uh, I, I'm not involved here. Oh. Oh, no, Jamie. You, you've you made him sad. Ah, Look how sad he is. That's not very neighborly. How are we going to get this treeway system off the ground if yous don't help at all? Um, hey, this is your bright idea. I'm pretty sure it's against my religion. How is this my this idea? This is your idea because Jesus, you they'll be at it forever. Let's get back leave. to this treeway, Kyle. What exactly is this system? I'm so glad you asked. First, the thrusting. Uh, 
Oh. As we cut across branches, then there's the flexing. Oh. As we trim the branches, and then the final stroke oh. is to clean up the leaves. <laughs> well, I'm in. Your place or mine? <laughs> I got no trees in my place. That would be ridiculous. How about you just give us your address and we'll be over soon? I'll be waiting. See, Jess, how easy was that to gin up business? You want to try? Um, Kyle? Hey, how about a treeway? Treeway. Want a treeway with us? Come on, just join in. Wow, so crazy. I have a, a different engagement a at Let's another oh, place, so... Hannah? Don't try to pawn that recorder off of me. Treeway. This week on The Trump Diaries, impeachment proceedings bring new bombshells as Gordon Sondland's testimony implicates everyone. Roger Stone is convicted on all counts. Trump loses bigly in Louisiana and on his taxes. Amazon files a grievance in another emerging scandal. And Trump pardons war criminals over the Pentagon's objections. These are The Trump Diaries. Day 1029, November 14th. Roger Stone was convicted of all seven counts in a federal case over statements made to Congress related to WikiLeaks. Stone, a close Trump confidant, was convicted of lying to Congress to protect Trump. He was also convicted on charges of witness tampering and obstruction over his remarks about WikiLeaks' email releases during the 2016 presidential campaign. Stone now faces 50 years in prison. Stone was the key contact between WikiLeaks and the Trump campaign with regards to the stolen emails from the Democratic National Committee servers. Trump responded with a tweet storm saying, quote, so they now convict Roger Stone of lying and want to jail him for many years to come. Well, what about crooked Hillary, Comey, Streck, Page, McKay, Brennan, Clapter, Shifty, Shift, Orrin, Nelly, Steele, and all the others, including even Mueller himself? Didn't they lie? A double standard like never seen before in the history of our country. Worth noting is the difference between Stone and the figures mentioned by Trump is that Stone committed crimes and has been convicted of them. Also, Rudy Giuliani is now being investigated by federal prosecutors for possible campaign finance violations and a failure to register as a foreign agent as part of an active investigation into his financial dealings. Giuliani is being investigated for bribing foreign officials and conspiracy, as well as counterintelligence operations. Four of Giuliani's associates have already been indicted. Speaker Nancy Pelosi accused Trump of committing bribery when he withheld vital military assistance from the Ukraine. The Speaker's explicit allegation of bribery, indeed mentioned in the Constitution as an impeachable offense, is significant. In any case, the Democrats are closing in on articles of impeachment against Trump and setting the stage for a winter trial in the Senate. Public impeachment hearings resume with Marie Yovanovitch, the Austin ambassador to Ukraine, testifying today. Yovanovitch testified that Trump said she was bad news and would be going through some things. Yovanovitch said the comment sounded like a threat and elicited a physical reaction when she learned what was said. The color drained from my face. She said, visibly shaken, even now, words kind of fail me. I was shocked and devastated that I would feature in a phone call between two heads of state in such a manner. As she was testifying, the president tweeted a new attack against her, claiming that everywhere Yovanovitch went turned bad. Ivanovich was then asked to respond to the president's tweets just minutes after he sent them. She said she found them very intimidating. House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff said the president's attacks were tantamount to witness intimidation. Devin Noon accused career diplomats of working against Trump as part of a politicized bureaucracy. 
Nunes claimed falsely that witnesses had been chosen after a closed-door audition process in a cult-like atmosphere, and they had been convinced, wittingly or unwittingly, to be part of what he called a televised theatrical performance staged by the Democrats. Elsewhere, Deval Patrick became the latest Democrat to join the crowded race for the 2020 nomination. The two-time former governor of Massachusetts and friend of Barack Obama announced his candidacy yesterday. Patrick joined 17 other Democrats still in the race. And Louisiana's Governor John Bell Edwards has been re-elected in a major defeat for Republicans and Trump in the Deep South. Edwards, a Democrat, swept up black voters across the state. Trump had invested significant resources in the race. Edwards mocked him in his victory speech. And the Trump International Hotel made a pitch to investors and said the hotel could, quote, capitalize on government-related business. The Trump Organization has claimed that its refusal to solicit foreign business cost it more than $9 million. However, the hotel had a profit jump of 65% last year. Trump is now hoping to sell the hotel for more than $500 million. Day 1030, November 15th. A federal appeals court has ruled that Trump must turn over eight years of Trump's tax returns. The U.S. Court of Appeals in D.C. voted 8-3, to three, rejecting the argument that Congress doesn't have the authority to request his business records because the House Oversight and Reform Committee doesn't need them to pass a new law. In a related case, Trump asked the Supreme Court to block Mazars USA from turning over eight years of his tax returns to Manhattan prosecutors. Trump has consistently lost cases in court with his claims that he has, quote, temporary presidential immunity, not just from prosecution, but also from investigation. Trump pardoned three service members convicted or accused of war crimes in Afghanistan and Iraq. The Pentagon had pushed back strongly against the pardon, saying they would undermine the military code of justice. Trump ordered the full pardon of Clint Lawrence, who was serving a 19-year sentence for murder involving two civilians, and Major Matthew Goldstein, who was also facing murder charges for killing an unarmed Afghan. He also reversed the demotion of Chief Petty Officer Edward Gallagher, who was acquitted of murder charges but convicted of a lesser offense. Trump had what he described as a very good and cordial meeting with Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell about the economy. Trump claimed they discussed, among other things, interest rate policy. Trump has repeatedly attacked the Fed and called Powell a bonehead, an enemy, and terrible, among other things. The Federal Reserve subsequently issued a statement saying Powell told Trump the Fed will set interest rates based solely on careful, objective, and non-political analysis. The Turkish President Recep Erdogan visited Trump at the White House. Erdogan threatened the purchase of Russian military fighter jets ahead of the meeting. Trump had previously banned the sale of F-35 jets to Turkey in response to Erdogan's purchase of a Russian missile defense system. In a related story, Lindsey Graham blocked a resolution in the Senate that would have recognized the Armenian genocide at the hands of the Ottoman Empire. Turkey does not recognize the killing of 1.5 million Armenians. Graham claimed the bill was an attempt to, quote, sugarcoat history or to try to rewrite it. Day 1031, November 16th. Amazon has filed a protest in federal court of a Pentagon decision to deny it a $10 billion cloud computing contract. The contract was surprisingly awarded to Microsoft after Trump publicly campaigned against Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, who also owns the Washington Post, which Trump has referred to as the Amazon Washington Post. Pentagon denied Amazon the contract for what the Times called a highly unusual last-minute intervention by Trump. That denial came as a shock to analysts. Amazon is the country's largest cloud computing provider and had already built a cloud for the CIA. Trump apparently ordered former Secretary of Defense James Mattis to screw Amazon by denying it the contract. The situation appears to be another abuse of power by Trump and could form an article of impeachment. Trump wanted to classify all migrants who entered the United States without permission as enemy combatants. 
and send them to Guantanamo Bay. Trump's idea was quickly and quietly rejected before the president could make a public case for the concept. In a surprise, Trump made an unscheduled visit to Walter Reed to begin what he claimed were portions of his routine annual physical exam. That included a quick exam in labs. The two-hour appointment, however, was not on Trump's weekend public schedule, and the medical staff at Walter Reed did not receive a notice about the presidential visit. The timing of the visit raised eyebrows. The White House was forced to deny that he was treated for an emergency. However, Trump's doctors said specifically he did not undergo any specialized cardiac or neurologic evaluations. Trump later tweeted out a doctored x-ray from the visit superimposed with the DC comic character Superman's logo. Trump has delayed a ban on flavored e-cigarettes following pushback from his political advisors and lobbyists. Advisors warned it could hurt the economy and noted that Trump voters overwhelmingly consumed vape products. And in a speech to the Federalist Society, Attorney General William Barr claimed Democrats are engaged in a war to cripple by any means necessary a duly elected government. Barr, who is the nation's top justice official, accused them of using every tool and maneuver available to sabotage the functioning of Trump's administration. In waging a scorched earth, no holds barred war of resistance against this administration, it is the left that is engaged in the systematic shredding of norms and the undermining of the rule of law. Day 1032, November 17th. Closed door testimony was released from testimony from David Holmes. He is a counselor at the U.S. Embassy in Ukraine. Holmes overheard a phone call between Trump and Sondland, and then chatted with Sondland afterwards. Holmes testified the call was so extraordinary that he immediately told his direct supervisor, quote, you're not going to believe what I just heard. In Holmes' telling, Sondland assured Trump that Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky loves your ass and will do anything you ask him to do, including conduct an investigation that Trump seemed to want. Holmes also told lawmakers in the closed-door deposition that a childhood friend of Zelensky informed him personally that someone named Giuliani was claiming to be an advisor to the vice president. The top national security aide to Mike Pence told the House that Trump's efforts were unusual and inappropriate. Jennifer Williams added Trump's actions and words shed some light on possible other motivations for the freezing of aid to Ukraine. Williams told investigators that she took notes while she listened in on Trump's July 25th phone call with Zelensky and called Trump's request part of a personal political agenda. Trump later tweeted that Williams, quote, whoever that is, is a never-Trumper. Williams, of course, again, is the top security aide to Mike Pence. And despite Trump's claims that he did not know Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman, the two men arrested and indicted in relation to their work with Rudy Giuliani in Ukraine, he actually privately met with them at the White House last December. Parnas said, quote, the big guy, meaning Trump, had tasked him and Fruman with a secret mission to pressure the Ukrainian government to investigate Biden and his son. And Mina Chang, the aide who embellished her resume and even commissioned a fake Time magazine cover, has resigned. In her letter, she complained she had suffered a character assassination based solely on innuendo and said the State Department had not attempted to defend her. Among Chang's more comical claims were that she had addressed both houses of Congress and was an expert on drone warfare. Day 1033, November 18th. The House is now investigating if Trump lied to special counsel Robert Mueller in written answers he provided during the Russia investigation. That revelation came in a court filing at the U.S. Court of Appeals. The House is suing to gain access to grand jury material that Mueller collected during his investigation. The DOJ has refused to turn that over. The conviction of former aide Roger Stone drew new attention to Trump's answers because Stone was found guilty on multiple counts of lying to Congress to protect Trump. 
Secretary of State Mike Pompeo declared that Israeli settlements in the West Bank do not violate international law. Pompeo said Trump had, quote, simply recognized the reality on the ground. Previously, Trump had given Israel recognition of Jerusalem as the capital and affirmed Israel's sovereignty over the disputed Golan Heights. Pompeo claimed the decision would, quote, increase the likelihood of a political settlement between Israel and Palestine. That's not likely. Every administration since Carter has called the West Bank settlements illegal. California hit back at automakers that sided with Trump over the state on fuel efficiency standards, saying the state will halt all purchases of new vehicles from General Motors, Toyota, Fiat Chrysler, and others that back stripping California of its authority to regulate tailpipe emissions. That effect is largely symbolic. The state purchases fewer than 2,000 cars a year. Trump lost his latest bid to delay a former apprentice contestant's defamation suit as he faces a January 31st deadline to undergo sworn pretrial questioning. Summer Zervo sued after Trump forced unwanted kissing and groping on her and then slurred her by calling her a liar when she came forward in 2016. And Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson said the real crime the impeachment trial should be questioning isn't that Trump secretly withheld military aid to extort an ally. No, it was the whistleblower's decision to leak information about Trump's Ukrainian shakedown. That leak, Johnson complained, quote, exposed things that didn't need to be exposed. Day 1034, November 19th. The White House's leading Ukraine expert testified that Trump ignored official talking points about fighting corruption to instead demand an investigation tied to Joe Biden from the Ukrainian president. Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman said, quote, What I heard was inappropriate and I reported it out of a sense of duty because the connection to investigate a political opponent was inappropriate and improper. Vindman testified that he interpreted Trump's request that President Zelensky open investigations as a demand. Vindman, who was born in Ukraine when it was part of the Soviet Union and moved to the United States as a young child, continued to be attacked by hard-right media for his testimony. But his testimony continued to create problems for Trump as Vindman confirmed that he had drafted talking points for Trump's ahead of the president's phone call with Zelensky, and those talking points did include Ukrainian corruption. The former special envoy to Ukraine said that he didn't realize the push for a probe into Ukrainian gas company was connected to Joe Biden. Kurt Volker said, I have learned many things that I did not know at the time of the events in question. Volker witheringly called the allegation that Biden acted corruptly with Ukraine while he was vice president a, quote, conspiracy theory that is self-serving and not credible. The partisan Tim Morrison claimed he was not concerned that anything illegal was discussed during Trump's call with the Ukrainian president, but worried instead about the political climate if the transcript became public. However, when asked if he agreed that pressuring a foreign government to investigate a domestic political rival was inappropriate, Morrison replied, it's not what we recommend the president discuss. Also, a counselor at the U.S. Embassy in Ukraine said the Ukrainians gradually came to understand they were being asked to do something in exchange. Sunlet assured Trump that Zelensky will do anything you ask him to do. Meanwhile, Trump demanded that South Korea pay nearly $5 billion to station 2,800 U.S. troops in the country. That's a five-fold increase in funding. South Korea responded by agreeing to a bilateral defense agreement with China. And White House Press Secretary Stephanie Grisham made a bizarre accusation claiming that, quote, every office was filled with Obama books and we had notes left behind that said, you will fail, you aren't going to make it. Contemporaneous photos of the White House in January 20th, 2017 show no such notes or books, and the Obama staffers pushed back hard against the claim, which was false. Day 1035, November 20th. 
In deeply damaging testimony of the House, a Trump appointee told the House that he and others pressured Ukraine to investigate Democrats, quote, because the president directed us to do so. Gordon Sunland also tied Vice President Mike Pence, the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, and others to the effort and added that he and others were deeply reluctant to work with Rudy Giuliani. Quote, everyone knew what was going on. This was not a rogue operation. It was the center lane. Sunland made it clear that Trump withheld $400 million in aid from Ukraine until their president made a public statement that he would investigate Joe Biden's family. Sunland testified he told Pence in late August that he feared the military aid withheld from Ukraine was tied to the investigations Trump sought. He also thought it would hurt Ukraine and drive them further into the arms of Russia. Sunland also said he kept Pompeo apprised of key developments. He informed Pompeo about a draft statement that they hoped would persuade Trump to grant Ukraine's new president the Oval Office meeting he was seeking. Sunland said, quote, Giuliani also expressed those requests directly to us. We all understood that these prerequisites for the White House call and White House meeting reflected Trump's desires and requirements. Republicans trying to poke holes in Sunland's testimony asked how they knew Trump wanted this quid pro quo were met by Sunland's response, quote, well, when the president says, talk to my personal attorney, and his personal attorney makes certain requests or demands, we assume it's coming from the president. Sunland was also sharply rebuked by Sean Maloney of New York in an exchange on Trump's motivations. Asked who would benefit from an investigation of the Bidens, Sunland finally replied, quote, I assume President Trump. Sunland quickly pushed back at Maloney's tough questioning, claiming he had been very forthright, leading Maloney to pounce, noting that Sunland had altered his first testimony by saying, quote, didn't work out so well the first time, did it? Now we're here a third time. All due respect, sir, we appreciate your candor, but let's be really clear what it took to get it out of you. Sunland's testimony was explosive, and Trump immediately tried to distance himself from Sunland, claiming, quote, he didn't know him well. Sunland actually was a confidant of Trump's who donated a million dollars to his campaign. Predictably, Trump later tweeted that the impeachment witch hunt is now over. Giuliani also challenged Sunland in a tweet, saying the ambassador was, quote, speculating based on very little contact. I never met him and had very few calls with him, mostly with Volcker. Volcker testified and answered their questions and described them as my opinions, not demands. He later deleted that tweet. Finally, the FBI is seeking an interview with the CIA analyst who brought the initial complaint. The FBI's request indicates it is conducting a parallel track investigation into bribery and other issues. A new poll shows impeachment is slowly gaining favor. 70% of Americans now believe Trump asking the Ukrainian president to investigate his political rivals was wrong. 51% now believe Trump should be impeached and removed from office. 61% say no evidence will make them change their minds about Trump but 30% now say it would. Just 40% of Americans currently support Trump. These are the Trump Diaries. Chuck Mertz spoke to theorist Wendy Brown about the wave of anti-democratic politics sweeping the globe. Why are votes being suppressed, and why do neoliberals and right-wingers alike want to keep people out of the process? This is Hell airs twice a week, every Sunday and Thursday at 10 a.m. Welcome to our show, Wendy. I really appreciate you being on with us. It's a pleasure to be here. This is your, your book is outstanding. I've been reading your work for a very long time and enjoying it quite a lot. You have a quote from Middlemarch right at the beginning of your book by George Eliot, where Eliot writes, the tyrannical spirit wanting to play bishop and banker everywhere. Is neoliberalism tyranny? Is it cruel and oppressive control applied arbitrarily and unreasonably, or is it more than that? 
It's interesting. Um, it's I don't actually think it's tyranny, but I do think there's a tyrannical spirit in it, and I think the difference matters. Uh, for some years now, I've been arguing that neoliberalism needs to be understood not just as a set of economic policies, not just as a particular way of deregulating markets or letting loose uh, free enterprise, getting rid of regressive, uh, sorry, progressive taxes, um, stripping out the welfare state. All those things are true, but it also needs to un be understood as a form of reason, a form of reason that governs us even when there's no tyrant holding over our heads a particular set of threats or even a particular set of uh, instruments. And it's that form of reason that I'm trying to get at in the last couple of books I've written, and especially in this one where I'm really trying to explain something about neoliberalism's contribution to the surge of anti-democratic politics, explicitly anti-democratic politics that we've been facing for the last half decade. What do you say to those who reject the very idea of neoliberalism, seeing it as a, a term that distracts from a larger critique of capitalism, seeing the whole term as completely unnecessary? The reason it's necessary, in my view, is that it gets at a particular iteration of capitalism. It's not that I want to say it's very, very different from talking about capitalism in a kind of general neo-Marxist frame, but I want to be able us to be able to understand that it does more than simply empower capital and depower labor. Neoliberalism is a specific way of understanding states, societies, subjects, citizens, and above all, it takes an explicitly uh, anti-democratic project to get what it wants for economies and for the sphere of morality. So that's, I think, what we're going to talk about today, um, is, is what that hard anti-democratic thrust is at the heart of neoliberalism that's different from what we usually mean by capitalism, which is, uh, different people mean different things by it, but let's say if we take a rough left account of capitalism, we say, well, it's a form of private property ownership and retention in which capital has all the power and labor is exploited. Neoliberalism's a lot more than that. You write that centrists, mainstream neoliberals, liberals, and leftists are reeling, outrage, moralizing satire and vain hopes that internal factions or scandals on the right will yield self-destruction are far more prevalent than serious strategies for challenging these forces with compelling alternatives. We even have trouble with the naming. Is this authoritarianism, fascism, populism, illiberal democracy, undemocratic liberalism, right-wing plutocracy, or something else? What explains that reaction by the left, if you will, to the rise of the right? Why, why is the rise of the right seen as almost an anomaly, a movement that will inevitably fall and fail? What does that tell you about uh, the way that liberals react to neoliberalism? Well, I think two things. Uh, one is that I think, for the most part, um, leftists who reject things like the idea of neoliberal reason and just say, look, we're dealing with capitalism. They're still holding out for an understanding of true consciousness to surface from what they understand to be the false consciousness of those who have gone for a Bolsonaro or a Trump or Brexit or other things. They still imagine there is a true set of interests of the working class. They still imagine there's a working class 
And they still imagine that this bundle of lies and mystifications that opportunistic plutocrats have um, managed to capture the, the working class with will be exploded by, by the truth, by, by what's really real. And um, I think that, that the other thing that, that many imagine is that um, we're still in the kind of progressive narrative. We're still progressing, even if we had a little hiccup over the past 10 years, toward a world that is more enlightened, more free, more egalitarian, um, and, and more fair and more just, and that it's just a matter of getting back on that train. And um, I reject both of those principles. I think that to understand history properly, you have to give up the progressive narrative altogether. That doesn't mean there isn't progress in particular zones like science or technology and so forth, but there's no value progress orchestrating or guiding world history. And I think we need to understand and appreciate that in order to understand and appreciate also why so many who were woefully deprived of futures and adequate ways of life by neoliberal economic effects turned right instead of turning left. I think we need to be able to grasp the other kinds of forces at work besides progress and besides economic interests that organize people's beliefs and values, uh, political attachments, and this part is important, their rancor, their resentment, their, their uh, reproach of certain kinds of forces in the present that they take to be responsible for their misery that aren't those at the top, but are elsewhere. You write, already galled by an elegant black family in the White House, disgruntled whites were also fed a steady diet of right-wing commentary by Fox News, talk radio, and social media, inflected from the uh, fringes as a potpourri of previously isolated movements, white nationalist, liberation, or libertarian, anti-government, and fascist connected with each other via the internet. Is it all right-wing media's fault. What mistake do we make by simply blaming this only, only and exclusively on Fox News? Great. So let me get to the the heart of the thesis at this book. Uh, sorry, the heart of the thesis in this book. Um, and then uh, at the same time, acknowledge that the sectorization of the media and by that, I don't just mean the fact of Fox News, but the fact that there is a Fox News constituency that is only a Fox News constituency, just as there is a Rachel Maddow constituency that never looks at Fox News. All of that has made a difference. All of that has poured fuel on the fire. Coldy Genova entertained us in Studio A with a set of futuristic R&B. Off his forthcoming LP, Really Human, this is Hollywood Girl. It was engineered and mastered by Ari Shellist. Tell me. Say, baby. 
Welcome to Welcome our, to our ship. Our ship where we're having a bit of a problem as you can probably hear right now. Yeah, so any any handbook will tell you on any any barge of this kind they're the rodents, they're the, the, the problems that, that seem to occur over and over again, and we just did not do enough research. So you, you see things like termites sometimes. You see algae build up, you see... A fouling, uh, barnacles building up in unpleasant areas. Right, and that, we, we crossed and double-crossed our, our T's in all of those regards. But there was one rodent, one pest that we failed to miss. And how could we? Because now it is tormenting us more than all those things combined could have possibly. Right. So the last time we went, uh, when we docked last, we believe that something got aboard. Well, now we know something got aboard. Yes. Uh, we had our suspicions when we saw the jangled cords and the, the, the one-fourth inch, uh, inch uh, you know, uh, plugs that, that were just littered around our ship. Right. Well, the I, leavings of this sort of rodent. Exactly. And at first, too, the the noises that we were hearing, we thought, oh, it's probably the engine sort of moaning yeah. or rattling. Um, I mean, this is, in some ways, it kind of sounds, it's, it's very, very deceiving because it sounds like normal sh- ship sound until, of course, you have to sleep or record a radio show. Yeah, at which point it becomes very clear that we have a shoegaze band living in the walls right now. Yeah, um, it's impossible to pinpoint exactly where they are just because of if you haven't researched the harmonics of a shoegazing band they they are able to somehow make themselves larger it makes it sound like they're coming from every wall simultaneously well i believe that's a that's a um, optical illusion well i believe it's a uh, it's a prey response you know if the the in the wild the shoegaze band mm-hmm. has to appear much bigger to prevent being eaten from much larger more aggressive uh, bands and <laughs> so uh well, it works yes. for them. It, it is is making our life quite frustrating right now. Um, it really it really helps them in the battle of the bands. Yeah. Broadcast every Saturday, eight to nine p.m. The Lump and Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen radio sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.